Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Kenneth Woodward, author most recently of Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. Kenneth Woodward edited Newsweek's religion section from 1964 until his retirement in 2002. He remained a contributing editor at Newsweek until 2009. And altogether, he's written more than a 1,000 essays, articles, and reviews for a variety of magazines, newspapers, and scholarly publications. Getting Religion is the culmination of that work. It tells the story of how American religion, culture, and politics influenced one another in the second half of the 20th centuries. 20th century, rather, and offers portraits of many of the era's major figures and their impact on religion in America. Kenneth Woodward, in addition to his work at Newsweek and writing for various publications, is author previously of Making Saints, How the Catholic Church Determines Who Becomes a Saint, Who Doesn't, and Why, and The Book of Miracles, The Meaning of the Miracle Stories in Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. He joins us now. Kenneth Woodward, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you for having me. And uh, the, I think the book is uh, doing well. Uh, congratulations on on that. Uh, do you you still keep your your hand in? I guess you're still interested as a private citizen in in uh, this intersection ah. of. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess journalists are sort of public citizens, aren't they? I guess so. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I, you know, I I, uh, I do op-ed pieces and um, um, uh, from time to time, and I am. Um, testing out some theories of mine at uh, colleges and universities um, coming out of um, uh, getting religion and uh, the question which I can't answer right now but uh, which is um, is the future of American religion um, already behind us because we don't I I, I don't see um, public figures uh, ideas in public movements uh, uh, tied to religion uh, in uh, in this century, uh, uh, in the way that it was done in the second half of the uh, previous century. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah. uh, I don't. Uh, uh, it was an extraordinary, um, it was an extraordinary time that I write about, and uh, yeah, I, I have compared it, and and I haven't had any historians disagree with me. I have compared it to the middle of the 19th century, which was, uh, as I'm sure you know, a, a time of of the um, Second Great Awakening, and out of that came um, the uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints, among others, uh, the Disciples of Christ. It was an explosive time religiously, and it had implications in politics and certainly in culture. And we went through the same thing a hundred years later. So uh, coming up in the middle of this century, which I won't be around to see, maybe that'll happen again. In fact, you write, uh, you, you had the good fortune, or not, you say, of living through the most volatile religious period in American history. You say there have been other periods of religious enthusiasm upheaval. You referenced one, but none of these, I argue, was so widespread, so wildly diverse in faith and practice, so direct an impact on electoral politics as the one that ranged from the end of the Second World War to the dawn of the new uh, millennium. So an extraordinary period to, to be, be writing about. I wonder where... Where we are now as Americans, we're we're seen around the world as being very religious. Well, I am in a very strong uh, exchange of letters with a, a friend of mine who is an historian in Britain who is um, um, now training his um, eyes on American religion, and he disagrees with that. And I can't tell you where the outcome is is going to be between our exchange or anything else. But <clears throat> excuse me. There was somebody who uh, who I did not quote in my book who talked about um, 
that American religion was um, had really internalized secularism um, and a secular outlook. And these are very complicated issues because obviously you run across a lot of um, very sincere and, and, and knowledgeable uh, religious people. But the culture as a whole um, really marginalizes um, religion, in my view. I mean, you're in a region with the uh, with the Mormons there, where where it's very much a part of the public culture. But it's a very that's a very very regional phenomenon. Um, we used to talk about the Bible Belt, and that was a regional phenomenon. But by and large, with um, uh, with uh, with what's happened to the media, and and particularly since the advent of um, and these are the questions I'm exploring. They're not really in the book. But with the with the advent of, of uh, you know the digital uh, culture and so on, um, it's it's uh, it's uh, we're, we're in a different we're in a different situation. Uh, just what the connection is between you know using cell phones and so forth and uh, and and religion is again. I, I've got to write a uh, afterward to the paperback edition of this book, and I'm going to <clears throat> excuse me explore that. But there's a lot of stuff on television, religion on television, which is uh, usually, almost inevitably, um, Christian in its assumption. Now, well, let's not put it that way, in its language, but really isn't Christianity at all. And uh, I can cite a number of these things. The whole prosperity thing that you get from Osteen really has no support in uh, in Christianity, and yet he will cover it in that. So... Um, there's a lot of thin and rather rather um, um, uh, facile religion that passes as religion in America today. I, at the end of this book, suggest that um, maybe 20 to 25 percent of Americans um, place religion uh, at or near the center of their lives, and I think that's probably pretty accurate. About twenty five percent. It'd still be a lot of Americans, but but uh, yes, it's, it's it certainly a, would. Yeah, but it'd be a, a lower percentage than I don't know fifty years ago or, or or whatever. Oh, I think so. I mean, it's it's um, you know it's one of those things you had to be there to believe it kind of thing. But the the connection between uh, religion and popular culture and politics was very strong when I was growing up in the fifties. And that uh, most of that, or a great deal of it, had to do with the war and a common enemy, and a common enemy that was atheist in ideology. So one way of differentiating ourselves and bringing ourselves together was to say, you know, we're fighting on God's side, and we're fighting a militant atheism. And it was true. Hmm. It was true. Uh, uh, it, uh, so... Um, yeah, and, and, and in the era of Eisenhower, remember the subtitle of this is for Faith, Culture, and Politics from Eisenhower to Obama. Um, in Eisenhower, you had this fusion, and it was a way of bringing the country together. It was a time when we put in God we trust on our coins, and uh, we put uh, one nation under God in uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. So there was a lot of that, and you couldn't run uh, very well for, um, for president if you weren't uh, at least perceived as religious. And um, Eisenhower was not a particularly religious guy, though he grew up in Kansas, a very pious 
uh, sectarian Protestant family, but he didn't go to church or anything like that until until he ran for president. It's interesting. And that... I should add, and this is something I learned in the book, uh, when he was running for a second term, the uh, Republican National Committee, I can still see the story on the front page of the New York Times, um, declared that Mr. Eisenhower was not only the president and commander-in-chief, but the religious leader of our nation. Hmm. Now, imagine if that had happened under George W. Bush, say, or any of the later presidents. They would have screamed theocracy, but in those days nobody really paid much attention to that assertion. It's, it, it's, I think we have a, a popular conception. I want to talk, continue to talk about the presidency. Have a kind of, at least I have a, a, a conception that maybe you could correct or, or confirm that sure. uh, it's been more important. Uh, Republicans have been more comfortable with, uh, you know, with, with religion and, and having an overt place in, in politics than the Democrats have, have been. Um, you know, the, the, the moral majority, the religious right, has gained quite a bit of power. I don't know if you think that's waning now, but... Uh, um, but waned, W-A-N-E. Waned, already waned, waned already waned. Uh, I'm, I'm really surprised. Um, I want to say two things about that. The polls, and everybody made a big fuss about this, the polls showed, these are exit polls after all, not the most... Um, Exact uh, form of um, finding about people's eye, what people did and why. Um, tell us that 81% of evangelical Christians voted for Trump. What they don't tell us is why. An awful lot of that was economic, a lot of it was geographic, a lot of it was frustration. But none of them tell us that they did it because they saw this man as particularly religious. Okay. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of real politic in, in some of the responses. Um, they thought he would uh, do something about, uh, uh, you know, abortion laws uh, or in the Supreme Court, which turned out to be pretty much the same issue, uh, and so on. So they don't tell us why. Um, so I'm a little dubious about that. Um, the other thing is it was the Democrats who were the party of religion. Well, let's see. You could almost say that uh, until um, until uh, until McGovern. Um, the the uh, moral majority, which I discovered in, in um, researching this book, although I was around at the time, um, was really started by two Catholics and a Jew. Um, and it was in response to... Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, winning the evangelical vote, and up until that point, I got to tell you, even that uh, you know, a smart guys at Newsweek uh, didn't make a connection between evangelicals as a voting block and presidential politics. Uh, that's because they stayed away from politics. It was of the devil, it was not of God. So it's a very recent phenomenon. So they create the moral majority. And they pick a guy out from Virginia named Jerry Falwell, who has got a uh, mailing list. That's the big thing that he had. He also had a small jet to drive around, uh, to fly around. Uh, he had a lot of uh, useful things. And they they uh, said, look, 
want to run a, um, we don't think that, uh, that Jimmy Carter is the right kind of evangelical uh, for these people, and we're, we're going to organize, and they're going to organize the churches. And Jerry said, fine. And they said, we're going to call it the moral majority. So he did not even name his own organization. Hmm. Anyhow, that's how that got started. But before then, they really weren't a factor in politics. Um, I would go so far as to say, I do say in the book, that there's very little connection that I can discover between the personal religious convictions of a president and the domestic or foreign policy. There just really isn't a connection. And so um, that doesn't keep people from from thinking about religion. Now, I don't mind if people, moral issues come up all the time. Abortion is just one of them. Immigration, all these things have, have some public policies have strong moral dimensions to them. And uh, that's one thing. But whether the guy is a Methodist or a Presbyterian or Catholic, Really, uh, there's no connection between, or a Mormon for that would have been connection between that and, and, and any policy that I can see. It uh, so it's I guess this is religion as kind of a label then, right? A label for whatever issue you see as moral that you want to want to influence. Well, I mean, I think you no. Know, what happens is we, and these are good friends of mine, the, the, the political scientists that do it, John Green at the University of Akron is the dean of these people. He writes good books. They tell you how people who identify as Catholic or Mormon or, or uh, Lutheran, how they voted. Okay, that's all they can tell you. And that summons up an image in the common reader's mind of a block out there. For example, the Catholics almost invariably uh, since, I don't know when, uh, probably since Kennedy at least, maybe even before, have voted for the eventual winner. Um, They became, after 72, the biggest swing vote. Um, They were usually the most reliable and the most important uh, constituency for the Democratic Party. And that's another point I want to bring up, which I think is important. in relation to politics, um, the Democratic Party fundamentally changed under a very pious Midwestern or Plain State Methodist named George McGovern. And I go into great detail to explain how uh, that happened and to what effect. And uh, for a variety of reasons, which we can go into if you wish, um, they basically walked away from the blue-collar worker in preference for the better educated and increasingly suburbanized voter. Um, and they did so in reaction to the um, Democratic Convention that took place in 1968 here in Chicago with the riots. And so the people who were rioting on the outside in 68 were the people who were sitting inside in 72. And of course, McGovern lost every state but Massachusetts and um, the District of Columbia. Um, so the party of Kennedy and uh, and Johnson and and um, the coalition that FDR put together was not the same party after McGovern. Very different party. And so that party changed first, and then the Republicans changed uh, with the uh, 
as what you call the religious right became an important constituency of that party. So the party's arrangement that I grew up with, where each party had a left wing and a right wing, uh, or at least a conservative or liberal side, is gone. So we're in a very different situation, and after Trump... It may change again. Yeah, there's, there's there's probably a realignment going on, and Democrats are now talking about we need to get the the you know the blue collar voter back. Well, I wrote a piece in in uh, um, Chicago Tribune, and it got picked up elsewhere, um, saying, "Yeah, now's the time to go back and see where 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 you guys where you went wrong," but um, and 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 see what you can do about it. And other people have been saying, people more politically savvy than I am have been uh, have been saying the same thing. Uh, indeed, this is extraordinary. Um, you cannot write uh, a critical piece on um, on abortion choice for the New York Times. They won't publish it, but they did publish something close to that, which would be extraordinary. It be 40 years since they did anything like that. That's just a principle of the um, liberal outlook that that paper represents, and uh, saying, look, can't you include um, pro-choice women in there? If you think you're all for women, why exclude these? And um, we'll see what happens. If, um, if there's a political collapse uh, of this administration, and um, and uh, and if, as usually happens, the out party uh, wins the midterm elections, um, you probably won't see any change. And I think that would be a big. I think that would be a big mistake. Um, I think it's good when you have uh, moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans. We don't have a lot of either um, at this point in our politics. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Kenneth Woodward, his latest book is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, this statement of of Mr. Woodward's. He says uh, that um, the civil rights movement was inextricably Christian. That's uh, discomfits, I think, uh, some, some secular liberals. Uh, but he goes on to say, if religion was good for the movement, the movement was not so good for religion. I want to uh, talk about that and much more. Um, I want to talk about the, the so-called Mormon moment as well. Um, Mr. Woodward had an op-ed piece uh, in uh, the New York Times in 2007 when Mitt Romney was uh, gearing up his uh, campaign. I want to see what he thinks now. More or much more following this break. Did you know that children with autism can learn to communicate and play with other children when they receive early and intensive intervention? Research has shown that programs based on the principles of applied behavior analysis can help children with autism reach their potential. By identifying each child's specific strengths and weaknesses, professionals can create individualized programs that give the child the opportunity to practice appropriate behaviors and receive positive reinforcement. Through early intensive behavioral intervention, children with autism can learn the skills necessary for success in kindergarten and beyond. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. 
committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Our uh, guest for the hour is Kenneth Woodward. He's a longtime religion editor for the for Newsweek magazine. Uh, his latest book is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. You're welcome to join the conversation with your question or comment to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. That's our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, uh, Kenneth Woodward, uh, before the break, I mentioned I wanted to talk about the role of religion in the civil rights movement. You treat this in your book, um, and uh, the, there is one strain of history. Some people prefer to, I think, view civil rights movement through a secular lens. You point out that uh, that you know it's uh, the, the religion is inextricably connected with the civil rights movement. It's, it's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right? It's churches. Um, I wonder where you think this comes from. We, 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 maybe some revisionism uh, that that had has gone on that that some people prefer to view this as a more secular movement. The Trump people do. The, what's that? Or some people do. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yes. Well, uh, there were um, uh, secular people, if you will. Uh, there certainly were secular organizations. And after all, it is civil rights. It's not religious rights that we're talking about. Uh, but come on. Um, this was rooted in the black church. And it was shot through with appeals to um, uh, to history and to morality, uh, the songs, the anthem, We Shall Overcome, um, the whole idea of the movement as a replay of Exodus, you know, out of bondage into freedom. Um, you simply was shot through with all these themes um, and trying to separate out, if you will, secular strands. I think is um, is uh, is uh, futile. And uh, and look what happens after King is shot. Um, I describe it because. I was there, and and um, they um, what happened to the cities and so forth. So, um, yeah, um, uh, it, it certainly was religiously inspired. And um, you know, there's trying to untang, uh, trying to, I mean, the idea of separation of church and state in American culture is a fairly ridiculous idea uh, because these things bleed into each other, and um, and, and so you have, you have to sort out the elements and, and uh, you know, which is the stronger element. But, yeah, I think there's no question that the, that the civil rights movement, under the leadership of King, um, was was inspired in that way. Look, the, the churches were the places they, I mean, at Selma, I wrote about Selma. I mean, they, they had to use the churches. There was nothing else they could possibly use. And this goes on today. Um, you saw it when Jesse Jackson ran. Um, so they could do things in churches like in black churches, like raise money uh, that you could never do in white churches. So, uh, because that was the institution, the one institution that uh, African Americans um, could call their own. 
And um, so that's simply a part of our history. And that's special pleading if somebody wants to say, well, it was simply secular. You mm-hmm. know? And I talked about, you know, how do you, how do you achieve in, you know, in society um, a hope that is nurtured uh, in the churches? You have to achieve it in a secular way. So Selma, in particular, was a chess game between King, who had a million bucks to spend, that was a lot of money in those days, on the march and so forth, and the real aim, which was not, you know, the sheriff. Uh, it was the television audience and ultimately uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson to uh, get him to do what? Pass a civil rights law. Did it happen? Yeah, it happened. So it worked. Um, I want to have you talk about the, the second part of your, your thesis here, sure. that um, the religion was good for the civil rights movement, but the movement was not so good for religion. What? Why so? Well, I don't know if I quite put it that briskly, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I'm reading a um, review here, but they they distilled it, and maybe incorrectly, but... Sure. Uh, no, um, no, that's not really... No, I can't say that. What I... Here's what I do, and, and here we're talking topically now, and I'd like to talk structurally for a moment about this book, which is if, if, if somebody picks the book up, the bookstore or the library, and they run through the table of contents, they will not see in any of the chapter headings the words Protestant, Catholic, or Jew. Certainly I'm talking about Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, and Mormons, and Evangelicals as a variety of Protestants, but those are not the chapter headings. Chapter headings are um, things like uh, embedded religion. Embedded religion is well, is what you have in in Utah. You have a territory settled by a people of a particular religion, and when you're born in that territory, you're born into that religion, with the obvious exceptions, of course. Um, if you go to Minnesota, chances are the people you meet, if they're religious, and chances are they are, they're going to be either Catholic or Lutheran. That's what I mean by religion embedded in the landscape, okay? That's the way most people get religion. It's the way I got religion, through the family and the neighborhood and those institutions. Another kind of move, uh, religion comes up with king, and I call that movement religion. There, it doesn't matter if you are if you're at Selma, doesn't matter if you are Protestant, Catholic, or, or nothing. Doesn't matter if you came from St. Louis or Minneapolis or Phoenix. What matters is that you have made common cause with your brothers and sisters in the movement. And it's the movement that brings people together. It's a commitment to the movement. That's why when the movement disappears, a lot of people are left floating a bit. Um, uh, I call evangelical religion entrepreneurial religion. It's inherently entrepreneurial, and for reasons we I don't have time to go into it, but it's tied very closely to capitalism. They grew up together in um, you know Europe and, and especially Britain, and the the money that fueled uh, well, they're just entrepreneurial is what they are. They 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 create constituencies. That's what Billy Graham did with his organization and so on. Um, an evangelical pastor does not, um, I mean, if you graduate from uh, Falwell School or one of those places, you don't start out as an assistant pastor at a local church. 
uh, you go out and start your own. They kick you out of the house, basically, and said, you go, and if God's going to bless your ministry, it'll work. And those are the sort of self-made ministry stories that you get from, you know, Robert Schuller and uh, and uh, Oral Roberts and those in his day and all those people. So that's entrepreneur. Then there's the experiential religion, which is born out of the drug culture and the um, and uh, the changes in the immigration laws in 1960. That's how changes in society can affect religion. Until uh, they changed the immigration laws, um, very few people from from India and Southeast Asia could come here. Afterwards, you had a bunch of uh, you know Hindu holy men and and um, Buddhist uh, tulkus and so forth coming here. So they had they were available uh, when the turn to the east took place. And why the turn to the east? I'm I'm I'm, um, I'm, I'm making short of this. Uh, out of the drug culture came this uh, notion of meditation and the rest. Uh, so um, the kids, um, uh, many of them are disproportionately Jewish, uh, you know, wanted any religion but the religion of their parents. <laughs> and so you had that, that interlude take place. And then I would say, and I think it's important, given your audience in Utah, where I talk about the Mormons, uh, I talk at, uh, about them in a chapter called Sacred Families. Um, in the 1960s, Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously did a, um, a memo for LBJ on the black family finding um, real chaos there uh, in terms of uh, unwed mothers, in terms of kids with being raised without fathers, in terms of divorce or never getting married in the first place. Twenty years later, in the 80s, early 80s, um, those statistics uh, exactly described the white family. And he wrote another essay uh, called Defining Deviance Down. Once the, uh, uh, the disarray uh, in the family uh, became uh, typical of white as well as black, well, then it wasn't so bad, you see, because we... Uh, we're doing it, so to speak. And uh, with the decline in the institute in family as an institution and all the, that, that uh, the habits and, and required to maintain a marriage and a family and so forth, um, you know, are um, in, 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 in um, disrepair. Um, you also had a phenomenon in the 80s of a million kids running away from home. And you also had, thirdly, um, about 370 new or revamped cults appear. What's the connection between the two? Well, it's the runaways. You don't need a million run, uh, kids running. And these are kids from middle-class families, um, you know, uh, kids that were go- in college starting out or going. And you had the rise of, of, uh, of these cults as sacred families, alternatives to the family. And a sort of some like at Georgetown, I mean at Jonestown, ended up in uh, you know mass suicides and so forth. But we're talking the era of Dr. Moon. Well, it was also an era of expansion for um, uh, Mormonism. Um, so and, and 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 the you know stay at home one night, what family night, uh, one day a week, and all these things that I described. So um, there's a connection there uh, between what's going on in society and what's going on in religion. Well, talk a little bit about intersection of religion and culture. 
and it, it's it, you know it can be um, sometimes when we when we say religion we're really talking culture and and vice versa. So bringing it to uh, Utah, some Western states uh, that are heavily influenced by the uh, the LDS Church, um, it, it, people living in Utah, for example, are living in a culture that's heavily influenced by the LDS Church. Um, yes, certainly, it's a. Um yeah, let me put that in a little historical perspective. I talk in the beginning of a book about growing up Catholic, okay? And I say, I'd say of my experience as a child that uh, I was at the, I felt to be at the center of concentric circles of belonging, which is not just the Catholics in the parish, not just the Catholics we saw at other parishes when we went to mass while we were traveling. Um, not just the ones in my uh, Catholic high school, Jesuit high school, um, but all the Catholics there were in the other, in Europe, Rome certainly, but also all the Catholics that ever were, and plus these, um, <clears throat> excuse me, saints who were um, looking down on us um, from what I call high front porches. So that's a world. So it's concentric circles. It's a very solid way of, uh, of of establishing a self and belonging. Okay, um, the uh, there are, that was the largest parallel culture in the United States because it was spread all over the United States, um, unlike uh, Mormon, especially in those days. Well, there have been other uh, uh, evangelicals in the South, and now certainly Mormons in the uh, in the Western states, no question about it. Um, I, I wonder. Um, I want to uh, quote uh, Representative Steve King uh, here from uh, Iowa. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his with his uh, comments, but it seems to be. And I'll, I'll read the comments. It seems to be swimming in a in a, in a sea, if you will, at least to to my to my view, mm-hmm. uh, of of culture and of religion. So he says, very controversially, he says, you cannot rebuild your civilization with somebody else's babies. You've got to keep uh, your birth rate up, and you need to teach your children your values. So, you know, key words here, values. Uh, He uh, says that he's been delivering this message to audiences in Europe. In doing so, you can grow your population. You can strengthen your culture. You can strengthen your way of life. Um, So this is specifically about immigration, but it seems to me that it's, it's it's based in a in a foundation of uh, culture and uh, perhaps you know even his mind and his supporters' minds uh, religion. Well, sure. I mean, uh, look, um, raising a kid today is to raise them with a cell phone. You see toddlers playing with imitation cell phones. That means the outside world gets at them very early. When I was growing up, you could, the family, and especially, now I grew up in a suburb, and uh, my mother was Catholic, my father was Protestant, so, and they were from different parts of the of the country. So it, it, this was not an ethnic enclave that I grew up in, but there were lots of them, and there still are, especially the Polish sections here in Chicago. Um, there's that sense as, we as a family stand for something. We as um, believers in this variety of religion stand for something. It's very hard uh, to, uh, compared to when I was growing up, very hard to 
to to to stay critical of the outside culture because it invades in every which way the television set in the living room and I don't have to go through all those things mm-hmm. um, so um and and the studies show that it's very uh well i back in the seventies um the next to the Jews, the Presbyterians studied themselves the most, and um I talk about this in the book um I guess I should mention the book more often mm-hmm. um uh, and, and and they found uh, that little Presbyterians were not growing up to be big Presbyterians. They were growing up to be something else or nothing at all. And this has been a phenomenon that has now uh, gripped the Catholics. Um, there are more, as I'm sure you've heard, there. if you put all the ex-former Catholics together into one denomination, they'd be the largest denomination in the country uh, next to the Catholic Church itself. So um, it's a little hard to keep a space apart. You can try the Amish or the Mennonite method uh, and, uh, and so on. And uh, the, the, uh, the Mormons fall somewhere in between uh, those two. Um, you're probably going to get around to a quote I had about uh, um, Romney when he first ran for president. Uh, when you're, and um, I t- the people wanted him to you know, talk about his religion. Some people did. And he wisely said, go see the, um, what do they call it, the public information office there, um, because it would not have gotten him anywhere at all. But I did talk about Mormons talking one way among themselves and another sort of in public, especially about their own religion. And everybody thought, some people thought that was a terrible thing, and or at least a terrible thing to say. But come on, that happens all the time, um, that among your own whether it's ethnic or religious, um, you do talk one way. Uh, even people in uh, in the performing arts talk one way in public and another way among themselves. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a way of of saying I, you're one of us, uh, I'm one of you, and uh, brother, we, you know, let's let's talk. Um, I'm not surprised by any of that. It happens, mm-hmm. uh, you know, racially too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our group can say the N-word, but you can't, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, before I get to, I do want to talk about uh, Mitt Romney um, and yep. uh, and John Huntsman, for that for that matter. Uh, two different styles when they both ran for president um, in the so-called Mormon moment. But I just wanted to finish this out. Uh, Representative sure. King went on to, to, uh, to, com- to complain that uh, what he sees as enclaves that you were talking about that that were refusing to assimilate, you know, the melting pot that wasn't melting. Um, And, and for example, third-generation immigrants uh, in some communities who are not adopting, quote-unquote, American ways, Uh which would include culture, which would include maybe, I don't know, I don't know what's in Representative King's mind, uh, religion, you know. I mean, um, my father would say, you know, why don't you get me some real Americans? Why don't you date a real American girl if, if the girl's name was... Last name was Polish or something. Now he's half kidding, but you know he grew up among Smiths and Jones and Woodwards and you know people like that. And uh, this has been a groan that's been going on for a long time. And we do have immigration problems, and they do need to be fixed. Um, but you can't do it by um, uh, defaming um, you know groups and. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the reviews of my book 
um, complained that I didn't write enough about Mormons, I mean, about um, Muslims in there. I didn't write at all about them. I just mentioned them in passing. Why? Because they didn't impact American history in any way. Uh, they didn't arrive in many numbers until the immigration change law changed in uh, and it took quite a while to get, uh, you know, a lot of them in uh, parts of Michigan where they live and so forth. But uh, it's taken them a long time because they all come from different countries to 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 uh, to, to develop any kind of political muscle. They really don't have any unless it's in Dearborn, Michigan, or some local thing. So they didn't impact American religion, American culture, or American politics, even though they were, you know, they were here. Um, why am I telling you that? I because uh, so. They're all uh, people like uh, the man you're mentioning. The, the uh, congressman is, uh, you know, really talking about the countries of origin of these people. Um, but uh, I, I don't, you know, it's interesting. The same engines that Americanize people. I mean, I spent a lot. I just got back from Mexico. That's why I didn't know about that quote. And um, there's a lot of talk, obviously, down there about what's going, the wall, and all this sort of thing. Um, I have been in Mexican-American communities, and uh, if this man spent some time, not only are there Mexican gangs, uh, but there's also uh, Mexican family values. And you got to go to San Antonio sometime, and he'd be um, those values are as every bit as only the families are bigger. Very much like the, the um, culture of Iowa back in the day. My wife's from Iowa, so I can mm. say that. Um, family farms, now gone, but back then they had them. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think you'd be very surprised. So uh, I don't like people um, talking about uh, other people as if they are going to despoil our country. We've got plenty to work on, you know, ourselves. That said, it's perfectly true. You just can't let anybody in, and they do take economic advantage. Um, something does have to be done. But in what spirit and toward what end is, is something else? Let's take another break. When we come back, I do want to get into this uh, your, your op-ed piece that you've referenced a couple of times here, and I have sure. as well. Uh, I'll right. keep that promise, and we'll get into that. Uh, the, it was titled The Presidency's Mormon Moment. You wrote this in uh, 2007. I'm sure you have uh, subsequent thoughts as well. Um, Kenneth Woodward is my guest. His latest book is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. More following this break. When Jeremy Dang plays a Mozart piano concerto, he never repeats a melody the same way. He likes to add flourishes as he goes. I mean, for me, that just feels like kind of natural fleshing out of a skeleton in Mozart. Jeremy Dank on improvising his way through Mozart on the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Paul Schaefer redefined the role of late-night band leader on Late Night with David Letterman, but his career is so much more than that. You'll hear our conversation about music and comedy and a musical tour of his life coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 
And my guest for the hour is Kenneth Woodward, longtime religion editor at Newsweek. His latest book is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. And uh, you're welcome to join the conversation. Our email is upraccess at gmail.com, and our phone number is 800-826-1495. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this year op-ed in 2007. The Presidency's Mormon Moment was the title uh, in the uh, New York Times. I believe this is where you wrote this. Um, and you talked about Mitt Romney uh, gearing up to run for president, um, and, and of course he became the nominee uh, four years later in 2012. John Huntsman Jr., former governor of uh, Utah, also ran uh, that year. Uh, two different approaches. Um, this, let me start with with uh, Mitt Romney. You were giving him some advice in this op-ed about uh, a speech, and he did give a the so-called Mormon speech, uh, kind of uh, along the lines of JFK's Catholic speech. Um, how do you think the, the how do you think the the speech went, and uh, what would you say about? Um, oh, you know, <clears throat> let me. Um, yeah, I should interject to say, <laughs> by the way, there's a, there's a lot of funny stories in here. I didn't, I have all these stories to tell, and all these portraits of Billy Graham and uh, <clears throat> and, um, and and the Dalai Lama, who's I've known for a long time, and and. Uh, Mario Cuomo and and, um, and Hillary Clinton when I interviewed her at the White House. Uh, if I didn't have those stories to tell, it's not so much opinions. And also um, Mitt Romney. Um, I went out to Utah to inter- to do a cover story. It was the last cover story. It came out on 9/11, 2002. I went out there to interview Mitt and do a cover story on the Mormon Church and uh, because of the Olympics. And Mitt was relaxed. He was funny. Um, he was not the stiff guy he became after he, uh, in my judgment, okay, after he, and none of that showed, and it didn't show in that speech, you know. He just was um, too, uh, I don't know what it is, but stiff is the only thing I can say, mm. okay, and sort of programmed. And he never, ever seemed to relax. And... um and that was part of the problem that other people pointed out, which was that, you know, this man was a pastor to people, and he was thoughtful, and the money didn't seem to get in the way like it does for a lot of rich people. But he couldn't show that side because he'd have to talk about Mormonism, and that would have been a, 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 a made it difficult for him. Why? Well, polls show that 81, 84% of Americans, when he started to run, uh, knew little or nothing about Mormonism, and at the after he ran and lost, they polled again. Eighty-four percent said the same thing. So nobody knew. You know, he couldn't talk about the pastoral side, which was a much and a more relaxed and a funny side to this guy. And there have been others. Uh, you know, um, Bob Dole after he ran and lost uh, came out with you know did. Showed his 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 kind of his sense of humor. Uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about Hillary yeah. Clinton. So you've I think you've interviewed her. At, um, she you could say similar things about her. She she I've heard that in person she's you know charming and 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 funny and warm, but she comes off very programmed. Yeah, I did, and foul mouth too. By the way, oh, oh really? Just funny for a method. Oh, okay. Look, one of the main one of the main things I write about in this book. If we have time, uh, I'll try to make it quick. Uh, if there was a Mormon moment, there was a Methodist moment. Methodist moment begins with McGovern. 
McGovern's raised, he's a preacher's son, raised in a Methodist man's, goes to a Methodist college, studies for the Methodist ministry, uh, goes into politics. Um, in 1972, when he not only controlled the convention but won the, the nomination, the Methodists met four months earlier, as they always do every four years. They passed a series of resolutions, which goes into the Book of Resolutions, and those resolutions, almost word for word, were what the Democratic Party had in their platform. So I'm saying there was, it's useful to look at the Democratic Party since McGovern uh, as sort of secular Methodism. And it explains the religious, or at least the high, the righteousness that I find um, hard to take from the Democrats. I can criticize the Republicans for other reasons, but uh, the righteous, the moral righteousness that these people have is just extraordinary. And you're out of the line if you don't agree with us on gay issues or this or that or anything else. Uh, it's there in spades in Hillary Clinton. And it's when I interviewed her at the White House uh, and wrote a piece just before the 84 midterm elections, which brought in Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution. Um, um, that's what I saw that, that, that got people's back up in a way. She always knew, and she came across with this sense of, we know what's good for you. And that was a phrase from her Methodist uh, uh, youth minister. So that sense of, of, of righteousness and moral entitlement is, I think, what, uh, uh, very much a part of the uh, religious component, if you will, of, of the Democratic Party, even though it's the most secular of parties. Um, but in that, I did like her. And the story I tell is she, she was nervous. And we sat in the, um, in the White House, and she said, will you turn off your computer? I had two of them up, and not my computers, my tape recorders, and let's get to know each other. And I thought, oh, my God, this is empowering for me, uh, because she seemed nervous. And we did this wonderful interview, and I, she, uh, during which she said that, I said, do you ever think about becoming a Methodist minister, since she preaches a lot? I mean, to, to Methodist groups, and she said, I think about it all the time, but you can't use it, which was really disappointing. Um, but anyhow, and then, of course, we got at the end of the interview, and I had never turned on the tape recorders, and I was on deadline. So I got, my butt was saved because of the same taping system that uh, brought Nixon down, uh, probably saved my job. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to get this email that's come in to us from our listener, uh, a listener, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, Kevin says, Simon the Zealot, later uh, renamed Peter, was the equivalent to a radical leftist. Matthew is his polar political opposite, yet Scripture never documents any political strife between these two. Also, prior to about 350 A.D., there was no such thing as a quote-unquote believer in any political pr position in Rome or elsewhere. What happened between then and now is Emperor Constantine's alleged conversion, which marked the first time Pope and Emperor jumped into the same sack, scratching each other's back. Since that time, the balance between church and state has been forever out of balance, either leaning one way uh, or the other too much. The church is supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. The proper balance since Constantine has been precarious. That's, uh, that's Kevin. Oh, that's the Constantinian thesis. You hear that come up all the time, that the that the um, uh, you know the Christian Church, let's call it, uh, went off um, at the time of Constantine by be um, by becoming the the Church of the Realm. The relationship, and it presumes that the proper relationship between uh, church and state, let's say, is the American one. Um, and I'm afraid that's just not historically. Uh, I mean, you can make that judgment if you wish. Um, but uh, 
uh, is the church not? Church is a, uh, is a church of sinners, not of saints. And so uh, you can do what the Amish do and withdraw and, and stick to yourself. And, and that's got possibilities. That's actually what monasteries do, but they don't withdraw that much. Um, they still serve society. Or you can get down in the, in the mud and, and, and try to come up with, with solutions to social issues um, that, uh, that benefit uh, everybody. An example would be um, uh, the development of uh, medieval law, which, uh, which uh, got rid of people, you know, taking up swords against each other to settle a, uh, you know, family feud or something like that. And it, uh, it, it found other ways. So, yeah, I think you, you have to be the leaven of society. Uh, that's a biblical phrase. Um, but you're sharing it with other people, and it, uh, this withdrawal always presumes that the people in the church, or one defines it, are the saints and the others are the sinners. Whereas the church, if I understand the Bible correctly, is there because people are all people are sinners, mm-hmm. and the people who, including the people who belong to the church. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Much more you can read in the book, including um, portraits, these stories about the Dalai Lama and Billy Graham and, and others. Um, Kenneth Woodward, longtime religion editor at Newsweek, his latest book is called Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. Thank you so much. Tom, thanks for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.